0: Before I get started, I wanted to take a quick second to talk about my sponsor, PalomaVerdeCBD.com. New website. They changed everything up. It's an awesome, awesome new website. Go check it out. Very user-friendly. Got everything that the old one had. Just uh, a new layout and a new setup. Also, be sure to use the promo code FACTS whenever you check out. They get you 25% off your order. I love Paloma Verde CBD. Uh, I use the gummies and the tincture. It helps me mellow out. It helps me rest and sleep during the day. I'm, I am very much a up and going kind of person. And if the sun's up, I'm up and working a night shift, that sucks. So these help kind of mellow me out, calm me down, uh, get me where I can, you know, lay down, take a nap. They also have a south. My wife had a, a major back surgery when she was younger and she has some shoulder and back issues. And she has said that the south is the only thing that makes her feel better When she puts that on her shoulders, everything is better. She can actually move, she's not stiff. So go check them out. Carlos and Vanessa over at uh, PalomaverdeCBD.com. Use the promo code FACTS and get 25% off your order. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This Podcast. Right, fact check this podcast episode 73, and I'm not even going to give any pretense that this is going to be fun or entertaining in any way, because it will not be. I'm going to go through an article from 2018 on Mises.org about the disaster of the federal farm policy. I'm going to effectively read, just straight read about half of it, and then I'm going to kind of talk about uh, farm policy and some of the things that the USDA is responsible for. And a few other, like a few other topics, I, and and I'll kind of get into what triggered this uh, after I get through the article. So bear with me. The article is extremely good, but if you don't know much about uh, farm policy or the USDA or agriculture or or really any of that stuff, most of this probably doesn't doesn't register a whole lot with you. Uh, I grew up on a farm. I am a I am a farm kid through and through and that's part of the reason that I wanted to do this is because there's a lot of stuff that just people don't know about farms and and the way the agricultural industry kind of works so so I wanted to take a look at some of this so we're going to kick this off the 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 farm programs and all of this stuff really started in the depression in the 30s due to the market failure that had, that had happened at that time. So FDR's brain trust decided that there was something intrinsic in markets for crops that was preventing them from working. FDR's ag- uh, agriculture secretary said that a farm di- dictator was needed to fix the problem. They always need a dictator, don't they? I mean, the primary evidence the markets had failed was that crop prices were not as high as politicians thought they should be. So the feds intervened to fix it. And since it worked out well for politicians, they kept fixing it every year for the next half century. By early 1983, farm programs were a total train wreck. In 1981, Congress passed a farm bill to govern agriculture for the next four years. Five-year plans worked out well for Stalin, so why not a four-year plan to control U.S. farmers? And Let me bring... Briefly take a second to explain this article. So this article was written by James Bovard, uh, and he's written a whole bunch of other stuff. You can look him up and see what all he's done. A very, very good writer. So uh, whenever he, he makes references to himself. So that's that's who is talking in this. That's who, who wrote the article. Uh, so about the, uh, yeah, By in 1983, the farm programs were a total train wreck. Congress got a few details wrong in this four-year plan that they had come up with. Congress expected inflation to keep roaring along, so price support for major crops rose each year. The Federal Reserve hit the brakes on the money supply, and inflation slowed faster than almost anybody but Ron Paul and Lou Rockwell expected. Think we can get them to hit the brakes on it sometime this decade, century, my lifetime? By late 1982, the United States had a huge grain surplus, and exports were plummeting because federal price supports made American crops uncompetitive on world markets. Imagine that. Farmers could earn more by dumping their harvest on on the USDA instead of selling it into the marketplace. Farm program costs quickly doubled, and the USDA was stuck with the largest government-owned crop crop surpluses in history. So the Reagan administration launched the payment-in-kind program to counteract the boneheaded signals sent by other farm programs. PIK gave farmers $25 billion worth of surplus crops to sway them to idle their land, in addition to $50 billion in other handouts that year. Uh, And these are, the prices are converted to current money Figures. That's not the exact dollar figure that was given in those times. That's what it would amount to today. The 78 million acres that were shut down was more than double the entire landmass of Alabama, the entire state of Ohio, Indiana, and much less Illinois, or much of Illinois, sorry. The previous year, I had read several good books on the history and follies of agricultural policy, including one by Bill Peterson, a friend of mine, who I was happy to see honored by a special panel at AERC. I started writing about this farm shutdown and eventually snagged an assignment from Reader's Digest, which meant that I no longer had to go to a pawn shop to pay rent, but that's another story. Politicians thought PIK was great because farmers were the salt of the earth and bombarding them with handouts was like subsidizing American virtue, but almost nobody in D.C. cared about the collateral damage this program inflicted. Shutting down all that farmland wiped out a quarter million jobs for farm laborers, and farm-related businesses at the time, when the nation was struggling to recover from the worst recession since World War II. Across the Midwest, hundreds of fertilizer, farm equipment, and seed dealers had to close shop because PIK cut their sales by up to 50%. And the cutback in harvest, combined with the drought that Washington failed to forecast, spurred a spike in feed-grain prices that bankrupted vast numbers of unsubsidized poultry, cattle, and pork producers. And this could be the theme of government is unforeseen consequences. Like every time the government steps in and tries to subsidize something, tries to uh, prop something up, tries to give out handouts of some sort, tries to manipulate a market or the way people behave through some sort of legal action or what have you. Lockdowns are a prime example. There's always these unforeseen circumstances that like most people with halfway decent common sense can look and say if you do this it's going to create a negative incentive plus it's going to create all these other side effects that are going to come out of that but the government never figures that shit out so here we are and uh we're we're looking at all of this stuff that's like failing because of the government programs and farm subsidies. So, as far as spike and feed grain prices it bankrupted a vast number of unsubsidized poultry, cattle, and pork producers, the USDA Secretary Block proclaimed that PIK was the most successful program in history, uh, or farm program in history. And since I was writing a piece for a large circulation magazine, his staff grudgingly allowed me to interview him. Block was a West Point graduate and a successful hog farmer who once described himself as a country boy on loan to the Department of Agriculture. I thought of telling him I was just a country boy on loan to read digest, but I kept my mouth shut. Block was affable and stayed friendly despite my edgy questions. So when I pushed Block on why the feds were shutting down so many acres, Block stressed the need to avoid starving farmers off the land. But farmers were worth 10 times more than other Americans, and that didn't explain why many farmers were paid triple by the Fed for not planting, compared to what they could have harvested from a crop. Block said PIK was necessary because the federal government must move towards a more market-oriented agricultural policy. I asked how come Reagan signed that bill in late 1982, boosting crop price supports even higher, thereby making farmers more dependent on the government. Block was puzzled, and he denied that any such law had been passed. His poorly suppressed secretary sitting by his right hand squirmed as if someone had just broken wind and leaning towards Block and said softly, I think he's referring to the provisions in last September's Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. Block shrugged. I paused expecting an answer and then realized that I might not hear anything until the cows came home. <laughs> the contradictions in the policy never seemed to register with Block, and maybe that was why he was nominated for the job. I'm getting to something on that as well. The PIK didn't make a lick of sense, but it became the prototype for the rest of the 1980s. The USDA kept paying farmers to idle more than 70 million acres, and as federal policymakers continued to have one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brake, it was easier for politicians to shut down American agriculture than to untangle self-defeating federal farm policies. There were endless surpluses of subsidized crops because politicians decided that market-clearing prices were a luxury that America could not afford, or at least at election time. Between the start of the Reagan administration in 1995, consumers and taxpayers have been forced to pay more than $370 billion in handouts for farmers. And for the same amount of money, the federal government could have bought all of the farmland in 41 states. Obviously, something had to change. So in 1996, the Republican Congress passed the Freedom to Farm Act, a law that was loudly hailed by conservatives in Washington and Washington think tanks, as some conservative and some conservative editorial pages. That bill was very popular with reformers because it ended subsidies, or so it said. Actually, it replaced the old-fashioned handouts with market transition payments. The Freedom to Farm Act actually tripled subsidies compared to what farmers would have received under prior law. Wheat farmers got 50 times more in subsidies for their 1996 crop than they would have received if Congress had merely extended existing farm programs. Market transition payments were popular with farmers, so Congress extended them and eventually dropped any pretense of ending subsidies. Congress is now working on a new farm bill to cover the next four-year handouts, four years of handouts, and the odds of budgetary decency breaking in or breaking out are slim to none. <laughs> and uh, slim just left town as Dan rather like to say but the perennial failures of farm programs remain one of the starkest reminders of why washington's power and spending needs need to be radically slashed across the board and the farm bill that came following this article the, this article was written in uh, 2018 so 19 or 2018 In December, they passed the farm bill, which was largely uh, in response to another case of government fucking stuff up. All of the tariffs and stuff that Trump had imposed on China ended up backfiring in the way of uh, it it was having negative effect on crop prices, soybeans in particular, which for those who don't know much about soybeans, like soybeans are a major cash crop or agriculture in general. Soybeans are a major cash crop for farmers. High soybean prices kind of floated a lot of farmers for many, many years and are actually resulted in farmland prices and equipment prices, seed prices, like a, a huge inflation of prices on everything. In the agricultural industry. Uh, and, and it was, you know, it's largely supply and demand based, but like it was there. The the world market for, for soybeans is is very high. So when all of the tariffs went in place that Trump had imposed, that put pressure on the markets and drove the prices down because there wasn't as much of a demand for export. So as opposed to addressing the issues of uh, of all of the uh, tariff problems that were caused and allowing free trade to take place. Instead, they used government money, your tax dollars, to pay off the farmers so that they wouldn't be mad about the tariffs. That's the government solution. Break your leg and hand you a crutch. and and see that gets into even more issues that I have with agricultural policy in general in that like in the early 2000s when ethanol was becoming all the rage the Bush administration really pushed for ethanol subsidies to like to expand these corn-based ethanol plants, and which in turn drove the price of corn up because now you had all of these ethanol plants that were going in, and these ethanol plants required massive, massive amounts of corn to process in order to create the ethanol. And because there was such a demand, and because there was such a subsidization of it by the government, it drove demand up. It drove the farmers to produce more. It also drove the markets higher because everything was being subsidized, so the ethanol plants could afford to pay more, which meant the more they could pay, the higher the market went to match that. So it, it was just kind of a, a cyclical thing that. And then again, like I said, with like the the inflated soybean prices, prices on soybeans were. $10 or close to it for many, many years. And that drove the price of stuff up. So so what ended up happening with corn was like all of these subsidies and stuff ended. And, and then the supply and demand uh, kind of balanced itself out based on what the market could actually maintain. And so prices came way back down, uh, like not quite half, but damn near close to it, uh, down by 30 to 40 percent. Which was actually more along the lines of reasonable price points, as as far as so I messed with markets for many years, and like that was something that I looked at on a daily basis. And as far as as far as realistically, like it came back down to what prices the price points should have been on a global scale. Uh, So, but at at that point, like. what happens is uh, ag lending is based on those price points. So if you know you're gonna, if you want to buy a hundred acres and you know that you can get X number of bushels per acre in corn and you're gonna be able to sell that corn at a average of five dollars a bushel or whatever, then your price structuring is gonna be kind of based on what you can make off of it. And so, like the amount of money that people sell that stuff for ends up going up and because the prices are there as far as the banks are concerned then what they lend is going up and then when the price turns around and goes back down then you got all these farmers that can't cover their bills because that price point didn't stay inflated by government subsidies like no at no point does government being involved in any of this actually produce anything positive so But what got me thinking about this, and this is something that Giles and I talked about uh, the other day, you know, oddly enough, uh, in a, or no, no, I think it might've been Evan. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It was somebody that I talked to recently. We talked about how, you know, uh, the people who are in government in these positions often aren't people who actually know anything about what they're talking about in these positions. Uh, You know, Fauci, it was probably Evan since I'm coming back around to Fauci. You know, Fauci is a, is not actually a doctor. He's a bureaucrat with a, with a doctorate in medicine. Uh, so what got me thinking about this was I saw, I was reading an article and for some reason, they had a picture of Congressman David Scott. And I didn't know who the guy was from Adam. But next to the picture, it said, David Scott, House Chairman of the Committee for Agriculture, or House Agricultural Committee Chairman, or whatever, however they uh, word their dumbass titles that they give themselves. I was like, "Who is this guy? Like, who is this guy? Why is he the House Chair of the Agricultural Committee? Like, what's he? What's he know about agriculture?" So I looked him up. You want to know what he knows about agriculture? Not a Fucking thing. The dude is a longtime uh, congressman from Atlanta, from the metro. He has no agricultural background, no agricultural experience. In fact, he was uh, several years ago, he was rated in the top 25 of the most corrupt. (laughs) <laughs> members of the House. That's that's pretty impressive. You know how many people are in the House, and he got in top twenty-five for most corrupt. <laughs> and like reading more into it, his the announcement of him as the his nomination and being uh, voted in by the Democrats to be the the chair of the of the agricultural committee was. Uh, and this is this is basically par for the course for any Biden administration or Democratic uh, nominee at this point. Is he was the first Black man to ever hold that position? That's one hundred percent of his qualifications. As, he's a Black guy? Like that's who I want to have any kind of say over foreign policy. Now, don't get me wrong. He he is actually uh, it's not. All bad with him. He has actually opposed the inheritance tax that Biden had proposed because of the fact that it uh, it would disproportionately target farm families. So like he's not all bad. He might he might actually be a, a halfway decent dude. I mean, to stand up against the inheritance tax as a Democrat and as a Democrat from like Atlanta's Metro, that that takes some balls. So, you know, I'll, I'll give him kudos on that. Well, like one of the, you know, continuing on this the same kind of vein as a, a major issue that I have with U.S. Uh, farm policy is like, if you look at the, the Department of Agriculture, the USDA, roughly a quarter, of of the employees who work for the usda are involved in the uh, farm services which is basically government lending money to farmers like why is the government so heavily invested in throwing money out like that's that's one of their big things and then another thing like Like I was talking about with all the subsidy programs and stuff, and and the way they subsidized ethanol, and and now with the tariffs, and the way that's had negative impacts on stuff. A third, a full third of the entire Department of of Agriculture is dedicated to forest services. One of the primary jobs of the forest services is to take care of the forests and prevent wildfires and then you see like california that is eternally on fire how good a job are they doing because if you go through any of the any of the usda websites and look at any of the programs and the different stuff they've got going on like it's all about covid it's all about social distancing it's all about equality it's all about it's all about it's all about none of it's actually about fucking agriculture it's all about the social agenda bullshit. And none of that stuff should have anything to do with anything agriculturally related. Like the U.S. Department of Agriculture should be 100% focused on agriculture in every way, shape, form, and fashion, and fuck everything else that's not agriculture. And it's not, that's, and which that's not the way any government program works. All of all government programs are this you know circle jerk on repeat to keep promoting the same dumb bullshit that has become the narrative that they have to drive at every level of government no matter what. And it, it's it's not actually about the policy. It's not actually about the, it's, I think Johnny on Peddling Fiction said, like, whatever they name a bill, expect it to do the exact opposite of what they, you know, America's Freedom First Act. Yeah, there's nothing about freedom in that act. And, you know, stuff like anything that, whatever the name is, it's going to do the exact opposite. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture doesn't really do a whole lot to promote agriculture. and. Like the subsidy programs, that's not promoting agriculture. That's that's not allowing a free market. That, that doesn't let the markets work. That it actually, as you know, as the article explained, like going through the 80s, it actually did the exact opposite. And that's not to say that farmers are like these evil money grubbing, you know, bastards that are just trying to rake it in off the you know taxpayer taxpayers' dime. <laughs> they are extremely opportunistic businessman, uh, Businessman. I mean, I'm, I don't know, uh, seventh generation on uh, the farm back home. My brother farms, my dad farmed, my granddad farmed. I mean, there's a, we have a family graveyard that is full of all the people who uh, in our family who have farmed for, you know, generations for hundreds of years. Farmers are very much opportunistic. And if the government is going to offer a program that's going to basically give you money for free to not farm your land, they're going to take that. That's guaranteed money. I mean, most most farmers, especially smaller farmers, like they're not making this massive killing and just raking in money hand over fist like a lot of people would tend to think in the world. It's it's quite the opposite, really. Most of them are, are lucky to break even. Uh, if, if you're in the black, you had a good year. Like That's, that's the way a lot of it works typically. And so if, if there is an opportunity to take advantage of a program, then, then they're damn sure going to take advantage of the program, especially when you consider that the handful of programs that do work in the agricultural industry's favor and do pay off and and give out money and stuff like that are offset by just hundreds and thousands of pages of legislation that actively go against making it profitable, that actively go against making it tenable to Even run your business in a moderately uh, efficient and productive way. There are so many different just bullshit legislations that handcuff the agricultural industry into doing things in a very specific way. That somebody who's never been on a farm in their fucking lives will, you know, have tried to push because it it drives that corporate narrative. It drives that agenda that the government wants to push for. and Like, none of that shit makes any sense whatsoever. So, you know, I said all of that to say, basically, that as with pretty much anything, everything the government touches turns to fucking shit. And the agricultural industry is no different. If we wanted to see true free market com- competition and see what farmers are actually capable of producing how well they could feed the world we need to remove the government from all of that get rid of all the subsidies get rid of the tariffs that are restricting all of that Uh, and like we could get into more on the tariffs i'm not going to but like that was one of the that was one of if not the biggest issue of the civil war was because Washington was imposing tariffs that were negatively impacting the southern states and their agricultural industries. That was the number one issue. Slavery and all that bullshit had very, very little to do with it. It was the fact that bad agricultural policy was driving the south to bankruptcy and they had to do something to stand up for themselves. And maybe they learned. federal government for the last hundred years had looked at that and realized if we fuck farmers over then a whole segment of the country is going to say fuck you and try to leave again so maybe we should do these other bad policies in the opposite direction and just keep pumping money in to keep them happy who knows maybe that is it hopefully this episode has been somewhat informative and you got something out of it. And if not, I'm sure I'll come back Wednesday and just do a normal rant about dumb shit or COVID or something else. But in the meantime, I hope you have a good day and I'll catch you Wednesday.